Good morning. My name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the elders and teachers here at River Oaks. I would invite you to open up your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through whole books of the Bible. And last week, Pastor Chris started us on a five-week series through the book of Ruth. So today's passage is Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. Let's start at verse 1 and read the whole chapter. These are the words of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. (laughs) But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you? For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who 
who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer to ask for his help. Father, we come to you in the powerful name of Jesus, and we thank you for this word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open it up to us now and would apply it in all the ways he intends to into our souls. Pray that he would comfort us where we need comfort, convict us where we need conviction, encourage us where we need encouragement, that the Spirit would lift our eyes to see the glory of Jesus more clearly even now. We ask this for the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. When God created us as human beings, he, he designed us in such a way that we don't simply experience life, but we interpret life. God created us to be interpreters. Since that's the case, it's possible for two people to experience the exact same event and yet have two seemingly opposite interpretations and understandings and responses to that shared experience. Now, in our time together this morning, in this passage, we're going to see Ruth and Naomi really compared and contrasted. And as we see these two women, we'll see two perspectives, two ways of of framing our experiences, kind of two interpretive lenses that will affect how we see all of life, whether for good or for ill. These are two women who shared the same experience of suffering, or at least a very closely overlapping experience. And yet their understandings of that suffering and their response to it couldn't be any more different. And I think we can think about these two ways of framing our experiences, these two lenses like this, that we will either view God's character through the lens of our experiences, or we'll do the exact opposite. We will take our experiences and use them as a lens through which we see the character of God. And perspective is everything. This is big. It affects so much in our lives. You're either going to view God's character through the lens of your personal experiences Or the reverse, you will use your experiences as a lens through which you see and understand who God is. So let's look at each of these lenses and kind of what this looks like in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, starting with Naomi. So in verses 1 through 5 that we looked at last week, the sufferings of Naomi are are given to us in, in agonizing detail. A famine has afflicted the land, and Naomi, with her husband and her two sons, they left the land of promise to go sojourn in Moab, to go live among the pagan God-haters in Moab. Now, while away from her home, while, while she's away from God's people, her husband died. And then both of her sons, her only sons, also died. Naomi lost her home, she lost her family, she lost her providers and her protectors, 
She lost everything. Or, as we'll see, she, she almost lost everything. In verses 19 through 21 of, of chapter 1, we get a glimpse into the inner life of Naomi and see how she's processing all that she's gone through. So now that the famine has lifted and the Lord has provided food for his people, she returns home. And the women ask, it's been so long, they say, is this Naomi? Is this really her? Is she back? And her response shows us how she's interpreting all that she's gone through. She says that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That she went away full, but the Lord has emptied her. He's brought her back empty. She says that the Lord has has testified against her and that the Almighty has brought calamity upon her. This is imagery of God being against her in court, bearing testimony against her. She's saying that the Lord has brought this calamity, this tragedy, this this devastating catastrophe upon her. Now she clearly sees the sovereign providence of God over her life, even over her suffering. That these afflictions, these afflictions ultimately came from the hand of God. And that's true, but she's missing a huge piece of the puzzle here. She is missing God's kind, compassionate heart towards her, even in the midst of her suffering. She thinks, my, my husband has died. My sons have died. And, and therefore, God must be against me. Now, again, we're not given all the details of how she's thinking about this. So maybe she thinks that she deserves this. That she acted faithlessly by going to Moab, and now this is just what she gets. This is her lot in life now. Maybe she thinks the opposite. She thinks, what did I do to deserve this? This is unfair. This is unjust. We're not exactly sure what she was thinking, but it's clear that she has let, over time, she has let her truly painful circumstances warp and distort her vision of who God truly is. She is viewing God's character through the lens of her own personal experiences. And let's be honest, this is completely understandable. We get it that many of us, many of you, have gone through dark valleys of deep suffering. Many of you are there right now. And if you haven't, one day you will. You will. It might be the death of a loved one or a serious medical issue or or a difficult relationship or someone you trusted who abused that trust. Or it could be a thousand other potentially painful circumstances from your past 
or circumstances that you will experience in the future. Whatever it looks like for you, many of you know exactly what Naomi is feeling here in chapter one. Her response is completely understandable. But at the same time, it's utterly tragic. Because this is a woman who has gone through unspeakably devastating trials, but now the way that she's processing those trials, the way that she's framing them and interpreting them have made things just that much worse for her. They've put her in a downward spiral. And again, we don't know all the details, but maybe she was, she was doing okay when her husband died. She was still trusting in the Lord, still trusting in his goodness, and then one son died. And more weight was added to her shoulders. And then her other son, her only son left, also died. And the weight became almost too much to bear. And all of a sudden, those crushing experiences adding up one by one became a lens through which she saw a distorted vision of the character of God, a God who she perceived as being against her. How do you interpret the experiences, even the painful experiences in your life? Do you use them as a lens through which you view God's character? Have these terrible circumstances caused you to think, even if for just a moment, that God might not be so good after all? This is a word that we all need to hear. It would be, it would be wise for you to, to examine your life and see if even the seeds of this, the seeds of bitterness are present. That you might be on a trajectory that will ultimately lead you to a diminished view of God's goodness and God's grace and God's glory. Hebrews 12, 15 warns us against letting a root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble in our lives. Naomi didn't just wake up one day bitter towards God. This happens slowly over time. So let's think through a few warning signs. A few warning signs that might signal to us that we're heading in the wrong direction, that a seed of bitterness is taking root. Warning signs that you're not moving towards healing and wholeness and restoration in Christ, but in fact you're moving in the opposite direction. Let's think through these warning signs. And as we do, remember we have the Holy Spirit and we can uproot these seeds of bitterness through the joy of Christ. Warning sign number one. Suffering is beginning to reshape your identity. We see this in verse 20. Where Naomi's experiences have embittered her heart to such a degree that she changes her name. And this was in a culture where names had deep significance. That's who you are. She says, no longer call me Naomi, call me Mara. That is literally, no longer call me pleasant, don't call me sweet, 
Call me bitter. That's her new name. Now, it's true that trials change us. Life is not the same at the other end of suffering as it was beforehand. But, but hear this. Your suffering, no matter what it is, your suffering does not define who you are. Your suffering does not reshape your fundamental identity. And that's true because your suffering will never change who you are in the eyes of God. Never. So if you're starting to view yourself based on the, the difficulties and the disappointments of life, if your identity is being reshaped by pain and suffering, that, that's a warning sign. It's a warning sign that we should pay attention to. The book of Psalms is so helpful. It's so helpful. Because we see David struggling through these things. And his response is not to be stoic and just have a stiff upper lip and say, Oh, I'm trusting the Lord. Everything's fine. No problems. No, the... The book of Psalms is such a good guide to help us process our hardships in a spiritually healthy way. That just like in our call to worship this morning, in Psalm 13, David begins by dealing with his, his grief and his anguish, his, his heartache and his heaviness, his confusion and his questions. And he doesn't just fake it. He doesn't put a smile on. No, he, he brings those things into the presence of God. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But then David turns. He shifts. He says, but, nevertheless, he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And that shift is critical. That shift is everything. We can bring our pain, our disappointments, our sorrow, our grief into the presence of God. And he can turn that into praise. But the sad thing is with Naomi that at least so far in the story, there is no but. There is no nevertheless. There is no shift from her suffering to the Lord's steadfast love. So, so slowly over time, that bitterness consumed her. It, it reshaped how she viewed her own identity. And that's a warning sign for us. Warning sign number two, you lose hope for the future. We see this in Naomi's conversation with her, her daughters-in-law in verses 11 through 14, that her bitterness has ultimately produced hopelessness in her life. In essence, she says to these young women, why would you stick with me? I have no sons. I'm too old to have any sons. And even if I did, are you going to wait till they grow up to marry them? This is utterly hopeless. She perceives that the hand of the Lord is against her. She's tasted the hardship of the past and the present, and she has no hope for the future. She looks ahead, and she just sees darkness. 
So when you look ahead, what do you see? Does your past and present pain seem to just choke out any hope for the future? Do you feel like your situation is utterly hopeless, like this is your lot in life, you're stuck and there's no hope for change? Or do you see that these light momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare? 2 Corinthians 4. Do you, do you realize that God lets us feel burdened beyond our own strength that we might rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead? 2 Corinthians 1. So if you sense hopelessness creeping into your soul, that's a warning sign. Don't ignore it. Warning sign number three. You grow cold towards others. You grow cold towards others. Now think about what's happening in this passage. Naomi has two women in front of her. Two Moabite women. Two young ladies raised in a dark, pagan, godless, idol-worshiping society. And these two women are begging. They're begging to go with her as she returns to the promised land. As she returns to live with God's people. And she turns them away. In in verse 15, she literally says that she's sending them back to their people and their false gods. This would be like an atheist begging you to come to church. And you turning them away and saying, no, go back to your secular godlessness. This is anti-evangelism. And sadly, tragically, one of these women, Orpah, she does return home. But Ruth, who we'll hear a lot more about in just a moment, she clings to Naomi. She refuses to leave. She shows extravagant, over-the-top, faithful, loyal love to her. And how does Naomi respond? Verse 18 says, after all that Ruth said, Naomi said no more. Silence, crickets. Even when she comes back to Bethlehem and she says, the Lord has brought me back empty. She says that with Ruth standing right there. Ruth, who's going to be the hope for her redemption in the coming chapters. She can't see it. She has grown cold towards others. First, her relationship with God has grown cold. And now the exact same thing is happening in her relationships with other people. So again, I want you to think about your life, your relationships. Has your heart grown cold? Has it grown cold towards others? Towards those closest to you? Those you might find difficult to love? Those that you're afraid of being around for fear of being hurt. When trials come, is your first instinct to isolate yourself from others? Do you keep your distance from friends? Keep your family at an arm's length? Do you avoid growth group and and fellowship with other believers? If so, you're, you're avoiding 
the very people who can help you get out of the pit. So, so think about the current state of your relationships. And realize, and this is big, realize that the state of our human relationships so often reflects on the state of our relationship with God. If you're running away from others, most likely you've been running away from the Lord. The life of Naomi, the the tragedy of Mara, it shows us that this This framework of viewing God's character through the lens of our experiences, it leads to even more pain, even more brokenness, even more hopelessness and bitterness and lovelessness. But if you keep reading, and always keep reading, if you keep reading, you'll find that the story of Naomi isn't ultimately a tragedy after all. This is a book with a happy ending. The book of Ruth shows us Naomi's journey, her her journey in in reframing her life, in reinterpreting her suffering, in reorienting her soul towards the goodness of God. Even though she sows in sorrow now, she will reap redemption and joy and hope. There is hope for her. Naomi is not forsaken, she is not forgotten. The Lord will ultimately replace her bitterness with his sweetness, her emptiness with his fullness, her hopelessness with his bright hope for the future, and her lovelessness with his steadfast covenant love. She's walking through a dark valley now, but she's going to discover that God was tenderly shepherding her through it and out of it the entire time. But until then, At this point in our story, Naomi remains Mara, lost in her bitterness, viewing God's character through the distorted lens of her painful personal experiences. So what about us? What do we do if we see these warning signs in our life, even if in just small and subtle ways, in seed form? Well, let's turn to look... to Ruth. And with Ruth, we'll see what it looks like to, to reorient our souls, to, to shift our perspective so that we can start viewing our experiences through the lens of God's character and how much of a difference that makes. We'll see with Ruth that we don't have to live in bitterness, but we can be, as Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Ruth was an unlikely convert. She was a Moabite woman, the historical and and the infamous seductresses of God's people. And she had gone through the same experience of suffering as Naomi had, or at least again, an overlapping experience. She lost her husband, her father-in-law, her brother-in-law, her providers and her protectors. But remember, God designed us to be interpreters. And so two people can experience the exact same event and yet have two very different responses. Now, surprisingly, Ruth doesn't respond with bitterness towards God, but with openness towards Him. 
Her heart doesn't harden towards him. It softens towards the Lord. So how exactly does she respond? Well, look in verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth wasn't discouraged by Naomi's bitterness, by Naomi pushing her away. Instead, Ruth made a radical change in her life. She made a commitment, a vow, a promise. And this commitment was made to Naomi, but only secondarily so. This was a commitment made primarily from Ruth to God. She says, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. That is, if you go and make your home, with God's people and in God's land of promise, that will be my new home as well. Your people will be my people. Ruth is leaving the Moabites. She's joining herself to the Israelites. She's forsaking the world. She's joining the community of God's covenant people. Your God will be my God. That's the ultimate promise. Naomi had just sent Orpah back to the false gods of Moab. And sadly, she did turn back. But Ruth, Ruth abandons those false gods and she commits herself to the worship and service of the one true and living God. And this promise is binding even until death. She says, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. This is a till death kind of promise from Ruth to Naomi and ultimately to Yahweh. This is a hugely significant moment in the life of Ruth. This is most likely the moment of her conversion, or if not, it's, it's her public profession of her new life of faith and obedience to God. This is a covenant commitment where she is binding herself, committing herself, covenanting herself to God's land and God's people and to God himself. And if you're here and you don't know this God, this God isn't your God. Maybe you're, you're skeptical. Maybe you're curious and you have questions. I want you to know that this is what it looks like to become a Christian. That you're giving yourself up. You're putting your life into the hands of God. You're leaving your old life and starting a new life. You're dying to sin and coming alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're saying, this God will be my God. This people will be my people. So if you're skeptical about the Christian faith, 
if you're curious, or even if you're cynical, please keep listening because we need to ask the question, how did Ruth respond this way? How? Why is her response so vastly different from the response of Naomi? All of us, both believers and skeptics, we need to know the answer. And I believe the key to her response is this, that she viewed her experiences, even her very agonizing experiences, through the lens of God's character. She let the light of God's self-revelation shine. On her darkness. And again, this is really surprising. Naomi was an Israelite. She grew up as part of the people of God. She had grown up hearing from the word of God, and yet her trials have skewed her relationship with God. But Ruth was a Moabite. Surely she must have, have heard about Yahweh, about the true God from, from her husband and her and her new family, but Remember, this story takes place during the time when the judges ruled. That was a time of great faithlessness and apostasy among God's people. So we shouldn't expect this Jewish family to be just a great, faithful example. But apparently Ruth had heard enough. She had heard stories, maybe even just whispers and echoes about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it was enough to completely captivate her heart. She saw God for who he really is, as he has revealed himself to be, and she was filled with awe and wonder. And do you realize at this point in history, Ruth maybe had the first six books of the Bible, and that's it. So maybe she had heard the way that God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. This is Yahweh's own self-definition. If you remember, Moses asked if he could see God's glory. And then the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. For Ruth, this was new. This was big. The Moabites that Ruth was a part of, they worshiped many false gods, but their, their primary national deity was named Kamosh, which means the destroyer. And do you know how you worship the destroyer god? Through blood sacrifice, specifically human sacrifice. Ruth had grown up with weak Petty, bloodthirsty idols, but now she's heard about Yahweh, the only God, the creator God, the all-powerful God, the sovereign God. And he's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and overflowing with faithfulness. For Ruth, this is unheard of. There is no other God like this God. It's absolutely stunning. So Ruth exclaims, your God will be my God. This God is mine. And this changes absolutely everything for Ruth. Even when she loses her 
husband and she loses her family, she knows that those experiences, as painful as they are, they don't change who God most deeply and fundamentally is. This God is the great I am. This is the God who says his name is I am who I am. Which means that throughout the ever-changing circumstances of our lives, the Lord never changes because he is. And we can trust him. Ruth doesn't let her experiences distort her view and her understanding of who God is. Instead, she looks at his character as he's revealed himself to be in his word, and she lets that revelation become the interpretive lens through which she understands all of her life, even her most painful experiences and her most bitter trials. She takes God at his word, and it makes all the difference in her life. Her real faith in this real God brought real change to her life in real time. There's a biblical principle that we become like what we worship. We will become like what we worship. And Ruth's worship of a gracious God led her to become gracious and show grace to others. The love of God empowered her to show love to those who are hard to love. Like Chris said last week, this book is in many ways not about Ruth's love to Boaz, but Ruth's love to her mother-in-law. Naomi, she has no official obligation to treat her this way. But she has seen the glory of God. And in response, she shows extravagant, faithful love to a bitter woman who might have been a bit difficult to love. So again, we need to ask, how? How did Ruth become this way? She had everything against her. She was born in a pagan culture. She didn't have a Bible. She didn't have any kind of Christian community around her. But she had the only thing that she truly needed. She had God himself. She had God. We shouldn't be sitting here thinking, wow, Ruth is impressive. No, God is impressive. The God of Ruth is impressive. She was saved by grace just like us. This is all of grace. And by grace, she, she was led to worship the true God. She beheld his glory with the eyes of her heart. She, she meditated. She soaked her heart in the revealed truth of who this God really is, of who he says he is. She didn't process her experiences by starting with her suffering and then working backwards to the truth of God's character. No, she started with who God is. That was the starting point, and she let that unchanging reality shape her understanding of her life and her grief and her heartache. All of this is the power of grace in her life. Dear believer, Ruth had six books of the Bible. And she had probably only heard a few verses and a few stories here and there. But we have all 66 God-breathed books. We have God's full and complete revelation. 
And that revelation of his character comes to its climax in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter to the Hebrews begins with this very point, that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In the time of Ruth, God had spoken in all kinds of ways, but now God has spoken to us through his very own son. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is, he makes the character of the invisible God visible. He, Jesus Christ, he is the exact cookie-cutter imprint of God's nature. If you want to know what God is really like, look to Jesus. Look at his compassion. Look at his humility. Look at his holiness. Look at his mercy. Look at his kingly sovereignty. Look at his kindness. And look at his sacrifice. The love of God for us is most fully revealed in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you find yourself doubting the goodness of God or the love of God or the kindness of God, look to the cross. If the difficulties and the hardships of life have piled up and started to twist your perspective on who God really is, look to the cross. If you want to know for sure whether God is for you or against you, look to the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is where God showed his love, where he proved his love, where he publicly demonstrated his love for you. His sacrificial love, his dying love, his bleeding love. Do you really think that God would give up his own precious son to a gruesome, excruciating death? If he didn't love you, while you were weak and ungodly, Christ died for you. While you were still his enemy and a sinner, Jesus died for you. Our God is a self-sacrificial God. A God who enters into our suffering. Who became a man and as our substitute, he died in our place for our sins so that we might be reconciled to him by grace through faith forever. He doesn't demand blood sacrifice like the false gods of Moab. He provides a blood sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself as a free gift to you. So if you want to understand who God is, if you want to understand how he relates to you, don't look to your own suffering. Look to the sufferings of Christ. Remember, your suffering doesn't define you. Your suffering doesn't reshape your identity. But Jesus' suffering does. 
You are defined by his pain, not yours. Your life is shaped by his scars, not your own. And just as Naomi's identity was was reshaped into the bitterness of Mara, now Ruth's identity is shifting from a Moabitess to a true, faithful Israelite, a member of God's people. And our identity can be transformed as well. So let the cross become the lens through which you view the character of God, your life experience, your sufferings, your personal identity, everything. What Ruth could only see in part, we have seen in its fullness in Christ, in his death, and in his resurrection. So look to Jesus. Look to his cross and see the proof of his everlasting love for you where the, where the sweetness of his gospel and his grace can completely transform any hint of bitterness in our lives. Look to him. Set the gaze of your heart upon him. Rest your soul in him. Spend time in his healing, joyful presence through prayer. Soak your mind and saturate your heart in his truth. Remind yourself again and again and again of who he is and who he says that he is. Surround yourself with friends and companions who can point you to his unfailing character day after day after day. And yes, process your experiences and do so by using God's revealed character as the starting point, as the lens. Look to Jesus and you will begin the process or continue the process of healing and wholeness and restoration in Christ Jesus. So this passage shows us two women Two responses, two lenses, two ways of understanding God and life and everything. So are you viewing God's character through the lens of your experiences? Or are you viewing your experiences through the lens of God's character? Which trajectory are you on? What direction are you moving in? Are you moving towards an increasing trust and joy and peace in Christ where your heart is being molded and shaped by God's grace? If so, be encouraged. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Or maybe you're moving, even maybe slowly, towards bitterness and hopelessness where your heart will ultimately grow cold and distant. If that's you, that's the Holy Spirit revealing that to you. And there's hope for you because the gospel is exceedingly powerful. Today, right now, this very moment, by the power of God's grace and the power of his spirit, you can get on a new path. You can start moving towards spiritual healing and restoration where your soul can thrive and flourish. So wherever you find yourself this morning, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray for that very thing, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would point us and direct us towards your love, 
And the steadfastness of Christ, that even when our lives are ever changing, that he remains steadfast. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us to, to lean on him, to trust in him, to worship him. I pray that you would do your work in us now through your word, through your spirit, that you would help us to, to process well the sufferings of the past. You would help us to endure the sufferings of the present, and you would help us to prepare for the sufferings in the future. So that in the midst of all of it, we can worship you. We can find our truest joy in you. To do this good work in us now, we ask. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.